Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're going to be talking about healthcare simulation fellowships. Uh, and in particular, how to design them and deliver them. And I'm going to be joined by Michael Magadushian and Katie Walker. Now, just for listeners, this is one of our advances in simulation collaborative efforts. And so this paper is published in Advances in Simulation. And I'll give you the title. It's called Fundamental Underpinnings of Simulation Education, Describing a Four-Component Instructional Design Approach to Healthcare simulation fellowships and the authors on that are indeed Michael Magadushian, Kamal Bajaj and Katie Walker Uh, and that was just published in June this year. So I guess the paper and our podcast I hope gets to this central question of if you're running a simulation fellowship how should you design it and how should you deliver it and what can you hope to achieve for the people who come out the other end. So my first guest is the lead author on this paper, and that's Michael Mogadushian, who's the clinical co-director at the Simulation Centre at New York City Health and Hospitals. He's also an emergency medicine physician, and relevant today, he leads the fellowship program there. And his research interests, as described on the website, include studying the limitations of working memory, degradation of knowledge and skills, as well as the benefits of deliberate practice. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. That's good. What I didn't mention is you're getting married in four days, so I'm impressed that you're able to (laughs) concentrate on uh, this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so lucky that she gave me the time to go ahead and do this. So (laughs) she knows it's important. (laughs) That's good. And Katie Walker, longtime friend, uh, new to Simulcast, but much overdue. Uh, She's the Assistant Vice President and Director of the Simulation Centre at New York City Health and Hospitals. Uh, But prior to that, and probably where many of our Australian listeners might know her, she was the Program Manager for the Health Workforce Australia National Simulation Program. Uh, She's a nurse by background and has a master's degree in international business and currently PhD candidate. Uh, And her research interests include using simulation as a change agent to improve the patient experience. How are you, Katie? Yes, I'm feeling great. Thanks, Vic. Great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's so good to have a solid Australian accent all the way from New York. All right, well, let's dive into the paper, and this is in the innovation uh, category of articles at Advances. And I wanted to sort of start with a little bit of background, and maybe, Michael, you can help us out here. What what are these simulation fellowships? Who's doing them? It seems like lots of people are offering them now. Uh, Give us a little bit of a picture about the setting here. Yeah, so simulation fellowships have been around for a number of years, and uh, a lot of them are kind of organized to offer up the knowledge and skills and attitudes that a competent simulation educator would need. And they're not only offered to physicians, they're also offered to nurses and to some allied health people as well. Um, And they're going through different, you know, different programs. So there are networks like ours, for example, health and hospitals. There's uh, other programs like uh, ASEP that are offering uh, fellowships that are only about two or three weeks. There are other places which will offer a two-year fellowship uh, like uh, Stratus, and they'll give you a master's in education as well, uh, or individual hospitals. So there's a, a broad range of different people that are offering them uh, and really trying to offer up what are the skills that are needed to go ahead and run a simulation, um, either experience, scenario, or even more robustly, a program. 
Mm, and I can see then why this uh, creates a bit of a need to get some consistency in terminology because what you're describing is everything from a whole subspecialty of uh, being a doctor, um, just like if you were doing paediatric emergency medicine, right through what you might think of as a short visiting uh, scholar for a week or two. Uh, and I think this is both a strength and a challenge, isn't it? Because we love the idea that there's people who come from different backgrounds to undertake sim- simulation fellowships, but at the same time it means that the people coming are probably uh, less homogeneous than, say, to take the example of the Paediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship. Yeah, the, there isn't much standardization around you know, how the, the uh, particular uh, programs are created. There's a lot of information out there about the what should be involved in a simulation fellowship program, but there's really very little about how to get there. Uh, and so there, there is some great opportunities because there's creativity in that, but there's also some drawbacks because you may sign up for one of these and you might not get what you actually came there for. Yeah, and uh, by way of preview, before we go back to the context here, uh, your paper outlines that pretty quickly where you've described particularly the simulation in healthcare outline about the what But then, and I'm going to quote from the abstract, this manuscript will provide a roadmap to designing curricula and assessment practices, including self-reflective logbooks, to focus the path towards achieving these desired skills. So with that in mind, um, Katie, can we go to you now? Because obviously we are going to base this conversation in the context of the fellowships run at uh, New York City Health and Hospitals. Um, give us a picture about when you started there and then the beginnings of these fellowships. Talk us through that. So I arrived at the end of 2011 and um, the simulation program is um, services the system, so the, the entire hospital system, um, which consists of many facilities and is widely spread throughout the five boroughs of um, New York City. Uh, and we needed to you know, provide easy access for all the clinicians um, in the system. And so the hub centre, which was built at the time when I arrived, um, is at Jacoby Medical Centre. And, um, and that is, some t- it could be almost two hours away from some of the facilities. So we really had to think about a devolved model of simulation where we could deliver um, simulation at the hub, but also locally at each of the facilities. You know, of course, to do that, you need um, highly trained simulation educators. So this is really about scaling up, is that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly what it was. So, you know, we had a, a small um, course staff, uh, which consisted of about um, seven people, I think, at the time. And um, and we needed to have um, simulation educators in each of the facilities. And so we started off with one fellow and then um, and they did more of the apprenticeship model. And then we had uh, the next year we had, you know, two or three. And then we thought, wow, we are really never going to get there <laughs> if we keep at this rate. And so I think it was in about um, 2014 or 2015, we actually ramped right up to um, 12 fellows. Um, and we, we recruited them from each of the different facilities. Um, it's interprofessional. And so we had a range of different professions. Um, and we um, developed 18 days of um, intentional curricula. You know, have the year, they have the um, established curriculum, and then they can go out and, um, and deliver in their local environment. And, and each fellow has to do a capstone project. And that capstone is actually related. It's signed off by their supervisor, you know, and it has to relate to what they're doing in their, in their local clinical environment. So that seems to work quite well. 
Yeah, and it probably gets to something, uh, this is slightly off-piste, but it gets to something probably that I know is close to your heart, which is as you get your skills and knowledge, you start to learn that, in fact, your big challenges are going to be about change management, and that must be a big part of what uh, you're trying to prepare them for. Absolutely, absolutely. They all are absolutely change agents. There's, There's no doubt about that. Um, and so we definitely have, you know, one of our curricular days is about being a change agent and, you know, thinking about quality and, you know, how to integrate all the um, practical skills that they've uh, learnt in simulation um, into that larger environment of safety and quality. Yeah, fantastic. Simulcast, connecting the simulation community. Um, all right, well, so to get our picture here, and I'm going to actually draw from table one in the paper, which is what kind of things, what are the what that Michael made reference to before? And some of these are unsurprising. We would like to think a simulation fellow at the end of their time would be able to do debriefing into professional education, uh, some simulation operations, the sort of technical aspects of delivery, scenario design, curriculum design, uh, and then maybe some things that don't occur to you initially, but which we know are important, presentation skills, uh, procedural skills training, uh, simulation program management administration, simulation research, simulation and quality improvement. So these are the kind of what's. But Michael, your paper is all about the how and actually sort of saying, sure, we're not just going to write down a bunch of topics and tell people to tick a box when they think they've achieved them. Can we take a little step back and, and tell us about the theoretical frameworks that guided this work? And I know you're interested in cognitive load theory and then how it applies to something that was actually pretty new to me until I read this paper, which is the four-component instructional design. So I don't mind how you kind of explain that, but why don't you start with cognitive load theory and then take us into this instructional design approach? Sure. So so cognitive load theory is something very near and dear to my heart and, and really gets into the idea of our brain can only take on so much at one time. And so what people have theorized is that there are three elements that play into how that that working memory works. Uh, And that is the area that processes and packages new ideas. And so if I'm trying to learn something new, there's the intrinsic load. That is what is actually being taught. Um, So if I'm going ahead and learning debriefing, for example, the intrinsic load deals with uh, all those elements of debriefing. It's the structure, it's the how you ask questions and how you go ahead and manage the psych safety. All those elements are intrinsic load. Then there is uh, extraneous load, things that are going to go ahead and distract from the experience that will make it more difficult to learn the intrinsic load. And then lastly is the germane load, which I'm hoping that when you have a sim fellow who's applied to your program, uh, the germane load is turned on. It's the kind of intrinsic motivation to want to learn those different things. Um, And so I'm hoping that somebody who signed up for this doesn't have a problem with germane load. So really, it's it's, uh, dealing with uh, how to learn a particular topic. But when we deal with cognitive load theory, a lot of that theory is simply applied to a simple topic. So if I were going ahead and doing a workshop and my workshop were on, was on designing sim fellowships, for example, then designing sim fellowships would be the intrinsic load. And then how I deliver that information, uh, if done poorly, may create extraneous load. So people might not walk away having learned what we're actually trying to teach. And so that, that really is cognitive load in a nutshell, but it only deals with that one sitting, that one experience versus how do you design a whole program? To, to go ahead and deal with all of those elements of becoming a competent sim educator. 
Um, and so that includes all those things that you just listed from table one, the interprofessional education, site do simulation, deliberate practice methodologies. How do you go ahead and, and run a program? Uh, and so all those things have to be considered. And then how our brain wants to take those on is really where we move into this four component instructional design, which has been designed by the same godfathers that design cognitive load theory. So, so that's how we've kind of gotten to where we are now. Yeah, and I think that's very useful because I think we've been used to thinking about cognitive load as, as you say, in designing a scenario or delivering a scenario, not wanting to overload our learners. But you're clearly applying this now to a more programmatic uh, uh, challenge. And uh, with this 4CID, four component instructional design, you, you described that nicely in the paper uh, about the four components are structuring the learning tasks, offering supportive information providing procedural information and focusing part-task practice. And again, this makes plenty of sense, um, but I guess I'm keen to sort of understand, get practical here and tell us about how it plays out in the program. Um, you in the, in the paper, you take us through the example of, say, debriefing as one of the learning domains. Would that be a useful one to take us through so that we can understand what the experience of your fellows is? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think debriefing is something that a lot of people can relate to because they, they know it's part of like, it's almost in our, 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 our blood of uh, being simulation people. Debriefing is really kind of a cornerstone of what we do. Um, but, it, you know, debriefing in itself is a very complex thing. It's got uh, structure. It's got, um, you know, how do you deal with a difficult conversation? It's how do you mitigate psychological safety? How do you ask deep probing questions that are going to promote reflection in a way that really helps people learn or, or to, to have new ideas that they've never had before. And, and all of those, to be able to teach those in one sitting is not really something that is plausible. Uh, uh, it's an incredibly lofty goal. And if somebody can do that in one setting, um, let me get their, their information. We'll sign them up for a job because that's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of information. And, mm -hmm. and most people's brains can't take on all that information at one time. So coming from a programmatic perspective, we have to think longitudinally and over time, and we have to kind of scaffold some of those ideas. And that kind of starts off with structuring our learning tasks. So we, and what's cool is that in our fellowship, we actually have multiple people. So we do simulations of simulations, and we can go ahead and we can put them into real life instances where people learn the best, as we know from experiential learning. And we can go ahead and we can recreate a debriefing experience for those people and kind of have those learning tasks get progressively more complicated. Um, and so where at the beginning we want to go ahead and focus on architecture, then we can uh, focus more on uh, the question asking, and then we can focus a little more on difficult conversations. Um, and we can kind of gradually increase the, uh, the complexity as we structure those learning tasks and make them applicable to real-life situations for the purposes of allowing them to really relate and create long-term memory in a way that we typically are, are meant to. Um, so with doing those tasks, we really want to kind of scaffold them up as well as allow them to have more freedom in how they are performing them. Um, in offering supportive information, I'm not just going to throw somebody into a uh, debriefing experience and say, go debrief. Uh, I want to go ahead and give them some information that they can understand what I'm, my expectations are. 
that they can understand where, uh, you know, the forefathers of debriefing have laid down some ideas before. Uh, how do you do a good debriefing? What is the structure of a debriefing? How do you formulate an advocacy inquiry question? What is a circular question? To talk about the theory so that they have the next opportunity to go apply it afterwards. So that's how you provide some supportive information. Um, and so you're already developing some schemata uh, or some long-term memory before they even hit the road running. Uh, procedural information. There are certain, certain things that you want to go ahead and automate. Uh, and so you want to be able to go ahead and have them uh, not have to work so hard to remember them. And so you want to give them direct feedback on those things that you want to automate. And in the instance of debriefing, I really think uh, architecture is really something that you don't want people thinking about, well, what's my next step? Have I gotten an attack uh, getting their emotions or their reactions? Uh, what am I supposed to do next? Um, you want that to be really kind of in the back of their mind, running on on like a like a computer so that they can manage when they don't get the right you know response or when they have an emotional learner. Uh, it frees up their, their brain a little bit to deal with the more complex variability of what, um, you know, a debriefing could be. So I would go ahead and have them automate and give them uh, procedural information, meaning that I'm going to go ahead and give them explicit feedback immediately as they're going ahead uh, and making an error. So say they forget the reactions phase, I'm going to stop them, say, I notice you've, you missed the reactions phase, I want you to rewind 10 seconds and have you go ahead and do the reactions phase for me because we need to have people vent before they go ahead and get into um, you know, analyzing their behaviors. And then lastly, park task practice. And this kind of digs into cognitive load theory a bit. A lot of these things are complex. So if I can go ahead and focus on one little element at a time and let them focus and get that out of the way and package it into their long-term memory, as they get more and more of that together, those part tasks, they can make a full task a lot easier. Uh, mm -hmm. And so certain things in debriefing, you might want to have them do uh, over and over again, like pre-briefing. You want to have them polish that and get that out of the way so that that is not something that they're going to have to struggle with in the larger context of a bigger debrief. Yeah, so you've described that beautifully. And for readers, if you want to have a look at the paper, uh, Table 2 sort of illustrates this where you talk about each of the components of this instructional design model, how it applies, and then give that a nice example, as you say. And uh, the cognitive load theory does run throughout the whole thing, doesn't it, both for the learner's experience uh, as well as for the program itself. Well, this actually sounds pretty intensive uh, and a lot of simulations of simulations and really immersive experience. I might come back to Katie here uh, as someone who obviously controls some purse strings at some level. Uh, you've got to be prepared to invest in this. Uh, is, it, is it worth it? Tell us more about that, Katie. Yeah, no, I love that. And um, return on investment is definitely um, close to our heart. <laughs> um, we definitely um, want to ensure that, um, particularly in our hospital system, which is, um, I think as we've said, the lar largest public hospital system in the States, we really are strapped for, for cash as such. And so we really want to ensure that any dollars that we invest in training, you know, pays off. So what we've done is looked at data on each level of the evaluation um, triangle, um, Kirk, Kirkpatrick's. And then we've even um, sort of moved on to the Phillips model, which adds the extra level 
of um, return on investment. We definitely did a deeper dive into our shoulder dystocia program in the um, obstetric departments, and we found that for each dollar we spent on training, we actually saved seven. Wow, that is impressive. Uh, And certainly I feel like New York City Health and Hospitals SIM program is leading the way on return on investment. But can I push you a little bit further and ask you, what about the SIM fellows per se? Do you feel like there's return on investment of having a simulation fellowship program? We are very strategic. Like We actually have more um, applicants than we can have places in our fellowship program, which is, you know, very warming uh, for us. Um, but we, we, we are also very strategic in the way that we choose who can actually um, be part of the program. And we ensure that um, they are in the areas where we are putting um, a lot of our efforts. And so therefore we are seeing the return on investment um, through doing that. Yeah. And of course, you've got to have a bit of a long-term view to do something like that, because as you say, increasing workload at one level is always going to have a downside in terms of what you can produce at the other. Uh, Yes. Ironically, increasing the cognitive load of the faculty. Come and join us on Twitter and Instagram at sim underscore podcast. So uh, I wanted to dive into just a couple of little topics that I thought were great um, in here that you took a deep dive on, uh, Michael. One of these is the psychological safety for the fellows, and that's something that we talk about a fair bit in the simulation community, but usually in the context of our learner groups uh, and having them in an individual session and establishing and maintaining psychological safety. Can you tell us how this um, uh, applies within the longitudinal approach of the fellowship? So uh, when I came to, I actually had left health and hospitals for a year and I came back and I said to Katie, I think we should do a, a bigger program um, because I had an experience actually when I did my master's program where I felt like I had a family uh, in my class. And, uh, and so these people, even though they were all studying different things and had different issues that they were trying to grapple with and tackle, um, Creating that sense of family was something that I thought would be really valuable for the fellowship experience. And so um, what we ended up doing was trying to go ahead and get a, a hand-selected um, interprofessional experience where people would come back every week, hopefully wanting to uh, interact with each other, get feedback from each other, uh, and, and care about each other. Uh, to the extent that even in this last class, they... Uh, that we had like a little baby shower for one of the fellows because, you know, one of them was having a baby. Um, they even, they even had a little, uh, groom groom's party or whatever. I don't know what wedding shower for me. Um, but, uh, in so Australia, that was, we call that a bucks night. A bucks night. There you go. I don't know if there was as much debauchery during that one though. <laughs> um, but so that, that's one way of, of going ahead and trying to, and so, and so in doing the psychological safety, you know, we describe this in the paper. We spent the entire first day working on it. Um, we talk about a lot of the things that, uh, you know, uh, the safe container paper, the Rudolph et al. safe container paper talks about, which is like, what are the expectations? Um, what what are, uh, when you're at the center, what are you going to be doing? Uh, what how, what are my vacation days? Uh, and how If I'm a sick day, like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to manage that? Um, so that's the administrative end, too actually playing games with one another. Um, so on the first day, we uh, do um, 
like a maze game. Uh, we've done flying paper airplane contests. Um, and actually, I, I totally, from our time together, Vic, in, in Australia, we do presentation karaoke. And that's at the very end of the day, because what, what we've done is we've kind of talked about all these different things, played some games. And at the end, we start dipping our toe into giving feedback to each other. So we make them a little uncomfortable for five minutes with some fun, and then we give feedback. And so we start kind of chipping away at this whole notion that we can't talk about our opinions um, respectfully. Uh, and, and we start really kind of setting down great groundwork for modeling good behavior uh, very early on. Uh, and then we keep that going. So every week we, had, we would do kind of an icebreaker with all of them or we'd make them actually come in with an icebreaker to go ahead and team up together and deliver so that we can keep this whole theme of family and fun uh, while at the same time doing really hard work and being honest with each other and, and uh, being able to give each other feedback for our own growth. Um, and so we not only teach it, which we do through a regular class, but we, but we actually try to embody it with everything that we're doing. Yeah, and so many concepts kind of crowding in there. It's a community of practice. Uh, you can see you're establishing cultural norms and you can see how groups interact and relationships and how important that is. And I think what you're getting at there is also starting to both share some vulnerability at a sort of fundamental level, but also some practicalities of like how we're going to navigate some of these conversations that might feel less comfortable. Very interesting and worth the deep dive. Uh, a couple of other things I just point out if you're reading this, you might get some new words that uh, I hadn't thought about before. One was expertise reversal effect and one is fading guidance. And when you explained what they were, I recognized them uh, in part from, I guess, my clinical career. But do you want to just tell us what's the expertise reversal effect? So, so expertise reversal effect is when you go ahead and you put an expert into a situation that um, is similar to their experience, but not uh, doesn't hit it spot on, they actually may underperform and they actually may have some negative learning from it. So being mindful of how you create the experience for them uh, and making sure that they are, are doing it in a way that they're familiar so that they can keep on growing and get feedback from it is really, really important. Um, and then the faded guidance, I think, is probably one of the most important aspects of, uh, of running a fellowship, which is you know, as adults, we like to have freedom and we kind of like to be uh, want to learn kind of our on our own times and our own rules and things like that. And um, so there's a bit of handholding that does need to happen at the beginning of an experience. But as people become more efficient and proficient, you want to allow them to have more flexibility to kind of try things out to fail a bit more uh, so that they have that opportunity to grow. And so in the context of uh, when we're doing something that's new, initially we may go ahead and do something like uh, rapid cycle deliberate practice. I may stop you immediately and go ahead and correct that action. But as we move forward, I may go ahead and say, well, we're going to debrief at the end of the day uh, and really allow them to have a lot of freedom in what they do and the mistakes that they make for the purposes of allowing them to make those mistakes and have a great conversation at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and so that in, in, and, and even in the context of allowing them to teach, right? So initially you'll give them a little piece of the course. And then by the end, hopefully they're teaching the whole course. 
Uh, and that just allows that kind of, it's deliberate uh, to allow them to, to really get more freedom and more comfort with what they're doing. Yeah, and I think uh, what those people want uh, is just some acknowledgement of the fact that they've already come partway along the journey and they don't need the hand-holding anymore. And I'm reminded, as I'm sure you are, of when you are a more senior registrar and you just wish the bloody attending would get out of the way so that you could do some of the stuff that you want to do. And, of course, they're trying to navigate this same fading guidance uh, from, from a clinical point of view. All right, well... Um... The last topic I wanted to talk about was coming back to something you mentioned earlier, Katie, which is about having an interprofessional approach. And this is quite tricky, I think, because when you're trying to set up a very standardised program with consistent endpoints, sometimes they feed into a training pipeline that might be more specifically medical or more specifically nursing. And I guess what you've tried to do is create a fellowship that is standardized or consistent enough across professions that people are going to be simulation faculty but maybe we'll still feed into different interprofessional training pipelines uh can you speak to me about how you make that balance between uh the same for everyone versus still fitting in with a training pipeline right yeah that is actually a really good point and i have to say you know it's definitely not easy and, you know, I'd like to give um, kudos to my team who has to manage the nuances of it. And um, we actually have some um, uh, fellows who are, who are not clinical at all. Like they've come from a, maybe a patient experience early area or um, a patient safety area. And so, you know, there is definitely a lot to learn, you know, when you don't come from a clinical background. Um, however, you know, everyone in the team has a lot to contribute. And so the feedback that we've had from the fellows is that probably the best thing about the fellowship program is the fact that it is interprofessional and that there's so many different um, professions represented there. And they really are, the peer-to-peer learning is, is ridiculous. Like they really do, you know, learn from each other um in in a really valuable and strong way yeah and i guess it just speaks to the value of diversity in any group doesn't it and that's one particular kind of diversity uh, but an important one in healthcare given that uh, one of the challenges traditionally has been about um silos between professions um vast chasms between clinicians and and others so this sounds like really important work to do mm-hmm. So, Michael, one of the other things you mentioned in the paper relates to assessment, and clearly you have ongoing uh, small assessments along the way, but one of the things that you outline is the importance of the capstone project uh, for the fellows in terms of knowing whether they've really achieved what they set out to achieve. Having something to kind of allow the fellow to display their understanding around a problem that they're grappling with for me has been a really good sense of, did we achieve what we're going out there to achieve? Um, because, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about biases right now out there um, and how we feel about certain people will either, will likely cloud our judgment on whether or not they've achieved what they've tried to achieve. But when I have this white sheet of paper in front of me full of words describing uh, their understanding on return on investment, Uh, understanding who their stakeholders are, understanding how they're developing their curriculum to tackle the problem, how they've written their scenario. 
I really get a good sense of, does this person know what they're talking about? Because it's, as opposed to having somebody else do your homework, there's not many people to do their homework for them. Uh, and so they have to actually put in the work and show me that they know what they've done. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between just doing the coursework and then being able to write the thesis at the end in a less structured uh, challenge. Yeah, exactly. And so that's actually allowed me to sleep better at night to know that we're saying that we're producing something and that we actually are doing it. Yeah, that's probably a good note on which I should ask my last question, Michael, and that is how do you see the future of simulation fellowships, not just yours, but uh, having some consistency across the field of endeavor, as it were? You know, for me, I think where I see the future of simulation fellowships in general is that we're going to, as a community of practice, kind of come together and really think about how we're doing a summative assessment to make sure that we all have kind of like an, an even finish line together uh, so that no matter where you are and, and not to kind of um, kind of tamp out the, the creativity that has been created in so many different places, but to kind of have a, a, an agreed upon set of standards for what we're trying to all achieve so that we're all kind of talking the same language. And then you go to the different pockets because you want different things. Um, I, I think that that's kind of where our next big step is going to be, uh, along with maybe other summative and formative assessments that are more validated around kind of agreeing upon what we're doing and how we're how we're getting there. And I think your comments there are uh, quite significant, aren't they? Because I think they're challenges for accreditation programs around the world. How do you get consistency, get quality, while at the same time foster innovation? Uh, and niche interests and uh, skill sets of different institutions. Well, congratulations to you both, both on the article, and thank you very much for being part of this podcast because I think it's been illuminating uh, to talk about simulation fellowships in the depth that many people are sort of grappling with. So I'll just remind the simulcast listeners, if you want to read the paper in detail, and I would suggest you would go to the Advances in Simulation website. This is free and open access, and this is a paper entitled Fundamental Underpinnings of Simulation Education, Describing a Four-Component Instructional Design Approach to Healthcare Simulation Fellowships uh, by Michael Magadushi and Kamal Bajaj and Katie Walker, two of whom have been with me uh, in this episode. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Vic. It's been lovely. Take care. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Simulcast. <laughs>